You've probably picked up there, there's quite a theme as we move forward in what we call the passion narrative of Mark. Each little episode, you could call them, becomes more and more sober as we consider Jesus' journey to the cross. And that is true in our passage today. One of the most famous arguments against the existence of God, do you know it? One of the most famous arguments against the existence of God is what is called the problem of evil. Perhaps you've heard that. The existence of evil in our world is considered to be one of the biggest arguments that critics who do not believe the Bible have for the existence of God. And the argument goes something like this. If God exists... And if he is all-loving, and if he is all-powerful, then why is there such a thing as evil in our world today? It's a good question. It really is. And the conclusion that the critics often come to is this. Well, then God must be either unloving, that he doesn't care about the evil, or that he's not all-powerful, Maybe he is loving, but he's not all-powerful, so he can't do anything about the evil, or just simply he doesn't exist. Those are the conclusions that they would come to. Now, at first glance, the, the argument does seem to have some merit. I mean, after all, if God is all-powerful, and if God is all-loving, and we as Christians believe and teach that he is, why does evil exist? Why? You know, to resort to one of those three possibilities that, well, maybe God's not all-loving or maybe God's not all-powerful or maybe he just doesn't exist at all, to come to one of those conclusions, though it might seem like a fair conclusion at first, really, those are weak conclusions. They are weak conclusions. This is an argument that assumes if there is a God, he is all-loving and all-powerful, then why should evil exist? But let me, let me just say up front, that's not a logical conclusion. You might say, well, why not? And I will say, stay tuned. We'll get to that. But first, let me ask this. In relation to the argument I just laid out for you, let me ask this. Why do we, we as human beings, why do we resort to such arguments? Why are there even arguments in our world today against the existence of God? Quite simply, the answer is this. Humanity, in its fallen state, naturally opposes God. Do you believe that? Humanity, that is us in our fallen state since Genesis 3, naturally we oppose God. Why would people create an argument against a God's existence Quite frankly, because man opposes God. Fallen man opposes a holy God. Man is against God. And that's what we see in our text this morning. We see man against God. Now, let me catch you up, because we've been going through the book of Mark for over a year. We've reached this section known as the Passion Narrative since Mark chapter 14. And here, Mark is describing the events that lead up to the crucifixion. We've seen Jesus with his disciples in the upper room inaugurating communion. We've seen how Judas already plans to betray him. 
We saw how Jesus foretold his betrayal, how the disciples abandoned him. We saw Jesus in the garden praying that God would allow the cup, that is the cup of God's wrath, to pass, to be removed from him. We saw Judas make good on his promise to betray him and come. We saw Jesus being abandoned and left to his captors. And that brings us up to where we are today. We'll be considering verses 53 through 72, in which the narrative Mark continues to tell us about Jesus going to the cross, and we're going to cover Jesus' trial and Peter's denial. What I want to look at this morning from our text is three ways that man foolishly opposes God. Man foolishly opposes God. Let's pick it up. I'm going to read again verses 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Your first point this morning is this. Man opposes God through foolish arguments. Man opposes God through foolish arguments. And that's what they were trying to do in our passage this morning is create this false testimony or these foolish arguments against Jesus. And let's break this passage down a bit because there's some interesting details here. Jesus is led to the high priest. Now, at that time, the high priest would have been a man named Caiaphas. And normally, trials like this would have taken place in a large meeting room. They would have met in a large meeting room where everyone would have come together and they would have talked about the trial, they would have put forth the charges against the accused, and they would have worked through it, sort of similar to the way we do things today. There's some differences. Jesus, though, is not taken to a large meeting room. He's taken to Caiaphas's house. He's taken to the palace of the high priest. And we can gather that information because we're told in this passage that Peter enters the court of the high priest, the outer court of the high priest's estate. Peter enters. And then we're also told this servant girl that addresses Peter is a servant of the high priest. And then in verse 66, we see that Peter is below in the courtyard below in the courtyard of the high priest, which that tells us that Jesus is upstairs. He's in like an upper room here. And by the way, we know from historical documentation that a couple centuries after this event, a trial that was handled this way would have been illegal. Now, it's not very clear whether this trial was illegal at the time of Jesus. It's, it's unclear from history if the documents that we know of cover the century that Jesus was in. But at least we know that it was done hastily, and at least we know it was done underhandedly. And twice, by the way, in this passage, Peter, which by the way, Peter abandoned him last time we saw this, and at some point, we don't know when, at some point, G Peter had turned around and followed Jesus, followed probably at a distance, followed the soldiers. He comes into this courtyard, and he's warming himself by the fire. We're going to come back to that. But meanwhile, Jesus is with the Sanhedrin. 
Now, who are the Sanhedrin? The Sanhedrin, we've talked about them. This is the Jewish court. It's made up of 70 men from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They come together and they judge, uh, they, they, they look at the trials that come their way. And as Peter gets comfortable near the fire, the Sanhedrin begin to accuse Jesus. It's very interesting to think about this. It's very late on Thursday night. Quite possibly it's even early, early Friday morning. And yet the council has been able to gather witnesses, false witnesses, who are ready to bring testimony against Jesus. There's something about that that just feels contrived. And that feeling only grows worse when Mark tells us that the goal of their testimony was to bring a charge against Jesus to result in his death. You remember that when Judas came to them, he came to them saying, what will you give me for me to hand him over to you? And they sought, they, they agreed with him and wanted to do that. They were glad of that, but they didn't even have a charge against Jesus. There was no official charge against him. They were looking for opportunities, and we've seen that all through the book of Mark, but there was no charge. We get to this point in the trial, and Mark tells us that there's a problem in the trial. They have all these false witnesses that they've gathered together, and their testimonies do not agree. Now, any lawyer will tell you, that's not good. Can't build a case on that. And actually, the law of Moses, interestingly enough, states that no accusation against anyone should stand with only one witness. Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 17 both state that two or three witnesses need to be available to bring testimony against a person, especially if it's a crime that deserves death. And this lets us know the length at which the religious leaders had gone to arrange multiple false witnesses, but their testimony doesn't even agree. And a charge could not, be, could not stand against a person if the testimony did not agree. Isn't it interesting they went to such lengths to get Jesus, but they couldn't hire some decent actors to agree on their testimony. Finally, some witnesses come forward that claim Jesus said he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Now, there's two things about that. First of all, Jesus never made such a claim. In John 2.19, Jesus, Jesus is, is um, approached by the Pharisees, and he answers them this way. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Note, he never says, I will destroy the temple. That's one thing. But the other thing, that statement Jesus made was two years previous to his trial. It had been two years since he made that statement. They are digging way back to try to find anything they can to make it stick. But even in this, Mark tells us their testimony did not agree. The testimony did not, so their case is falling apart. They were so desperate to oppose Jesus that their false testimony was honestly, it was a pathetic attempt to try to bring any charge against him. This demonstrates for us, by the way, the desperation these men were at to oppose Jesus, which is to oppose God. Man opposes God through foolish argument. Once many years ago, I worked at a specific company and I was in the break room and I was reading my Bible. And a guy came in, he saw what I was reading, and he proceeded to tell me that the Bible was full of contradictions. 
Perhaps you've heard something similar. Perhaps you've heard people make that argument. The Bible is just full of contradictions. Let me give you an example, something that a critic of the Bible would give you saying this is a contradiction. There's lots of genealogies in the Bible, and if you don't know what a genealogy is, think of it as a family line, great-grandfather, the great-great-grandfather, great-great-great-grandfather, all the way back. The Bible has many genealogies through it. And there are two in the New Testament specifically, one in Matthew and one in Luke, and both show the family line that leads to Jesus. Yet, if you look at them closely, there are significant differences between the two. Matthew, for instance, states that the father of Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, was a man named Jacob, while Luke states that Joseph's father was a man named Heli. Two different names. Actually, if you look at the genealogies between David and Jesus, they're completely different in the books of Matthew and Luke. Different names all throughout there. Matthew is tracing Jesus' lineage through David's son, Solomon, while Luke traces Jesus' lineage through David's son, Nathan. What's going on there? I mean, that seems like a really valid point. That's a major contradiction. Or is it? There's a couple ways to answer this, but let me tell you the way that I tend to agree with. Matthew, I believe, is tracing Jesus' line through his earthly father, Joseph. He's following Joseph's family all the way back to David. While Luke, I believe, is tracing Jesus' line through Mary, going all the way back to David. And because there was no Koine Greek word for son-in-law, Joseph is simply called the son of Heli, when Heli was really Mary's father. Isn't it? It's not a contradiction. It's not a contradiction at all. But people will draw erroneous conclusions about the Bible based upon these apparent contradictions when all it would take was simply a little digging, going a little bit deeper to show that the Bible does not contradict itself. Coming back to this this guy I told you about in the break room who told me that the Bible was full of contradictions, at the time I was young, I was inexperienced, and I really didn't know how to respond. I should have known better. Had I the chance to do it over, I would have asked him some questions. I would have invited him to sit down and just try to engage him in conversation. Questions like, okay, what contradictions do you see in the Bible? Questions like, how did you arrive to those conclusions? Questions like, have you ever studied the evidence that validates the Bible for yourself? I would have tried to take that tactic and really engage him. Instead, let me just be honest, I just kind of ignored him because I didn't know what to say. What's my point? My point is, we're going to meet people like this. We're going to meet people who have false testimony. We're going to meet people who want to create arguments or support false arguments against the Bible. We're going to run into them. And there are ways to respond to such people, but it does take a bit of study, a bit of study and a lot of dependence on the Holy Spirit. And I want to challenge you to be ready for those arguments. And even if you're not, it's always appropriate to say, you know what, that's a good question. Don't know about that. Let me get back to you. But let me challenge you, let's not shy away from these arguments. This could be the start of planting some seeds in people's lives. So be familiar. Be familiar with the Bible. Be familiar with how it is written. Note specifically, some good arguments about the Bible is specifically noting the Old Testament prophecies, specifically about Jesus, and how they're fulfilled in him. That's a great way to show how the Bible is cohesive. It gives you a solid base to hold these conversations. And I'm going to throw out another resource. Bible's always resource number one. Amen? Amen. 
Okay, Bible's always resource number one, but I'm going to throw something else out there just in case you're interested. I've recommended this before. It's a little book by a man named Josh McDowell called More Than a Carpenter. I've got a couple copies in my office. You want one? Come grab it from me after church. And in that, the reason I, I, I uh, recommend that is little, it's easy to read, and he lays out some really good arguments defending Jesus and defending the Bible. And there's lots of other resources out there that we can get our hands on, but we need to have a bit of knowledge and a lot of dependence on the Holy Spirit to defend God's word because we're going to come across this. And let me say one more thing about this. Sometimes we can get wrapped up in the argument so much, wrapped up in the, in, in the, the reasons why we are correct that we forget to love. You want to know the real thing that's going to reach a person's heart? If they see that you love them, how you conduct yourself as you talk to them. If it's not done in love, you're not going to reach the heart. You could have all the right answers. You can answer every single one of their questions. You could defeat their argument. But if it's not done in love, you're not going to reach the heart. Know well how to respond to arguments, but respond in love. And by the way, while we're on this topic of arguments against God and his word, let's not forget that even we as Christians do this. We formulate arguments against God and his word. Let me explain that. We don't deny his existence, of course, because that would not make us Christians. But we make excuses all the time for our own sin, don't we? We make excuses for it. We say things like this. That wasn't really a lie. Or, you know, that, you know, that was just a harmless glance. Or, you know what? She deserved what I said to her. Or, he shouldn't have slighted me like that in the first place. We are good at making arguments dismissing our sin. But you know what? The crazy thing is, we don't have to. Our Lord invites us to bring our sin to him. Why do we feel like we need to justify it? Why do we feel like we need to hide it? Why do we feel like we need to make arguments for our sin when our God invites us in? We don't have to make excuses. We don't have to try and argue it away. We are invited to come and to confess. And he's not standing over us with a clenched fist wondering why we can't get things right. He's beckoning to us with open arms saying, come, confess to me and be restored. Let me challenge you. Let's stop the arguments to deny our sin or belittle our sin, and let's just simply run to our Savior. Man opposes God through foolish arguments. Here's your second point. Man opposes God through foolish accusations. Pick up the story with me in verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds in heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do, you, do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him. With blows. Man opposes God through foolish accusations. Now, at this point in the narrative, the high priest that is Caiaphas, he stands up and he notices Jesus isn't answering and he wants to address that. Have you no answer to make? 
And then he asks a very interesting question. What is it that these men testify against you? I think that's actually a good question because no one knows what they're testifying. Their testimonies don't meet. What is Caiaphas doing here? His intent is to try to get Jesus to speak and incriminate himself since none of the testimony was able to do that. But Jesus, however, remains silent. Silent before his accusers. Did anyone in that room think of Isaiah 53.7? He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Did anybody think about that? Probably not. And at this point, the high priest presses him. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And that term, the blessed, by the way, that was a common term for God. It was a way to speak of God without using God's name, which Jews, I told you last week, avoided doing. And you remember, last week, Jesus addressed God as Abba, Daddy. And there's great intimacy between Jesus and the Father, an intimacy, by the way, that you and I are invited to participate in. The high priest, however, think about it, the representative of the people before God wouldn't even use the name Yahweh. That's the name God had given to himself. I think there's a subtle picture here of the distance between God and the high priest, the lack of intimacy. The high priest can't even call God by his name. Jesus calls God Abba. And this, by the way, when the high priest stands up and begins to question, this is the first time that Jesus has asked any direct questions. So this question deserves an answer. Jesus does open his mouth here. And know this, that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Jesus knew his statement would seal his fate. He knew that. But remember from last week, he'd already accepted that in the garden. Jesus says in verse 62, I am. What does that remind you of? That should take you all the way back to Exodus chapter 3 when Moses asked God what his name is and he responds, I am who I am, Yahweh. Another bit of irony, Caiaphas can't utter the name of God and Jesus here declares, I am. And then Jesus goes on and he says, you and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds in heaven. This is a mighty statement. In this verse, Jesus combines two messianic ideas. The Son of Man, which we've looked at for many weeks, it's a reference to Daniel chapter 7, where the prophet Daniel sees a vision in which the Son of Man, that is the Messiah, receives glory in a kingdom. But also in this statement in verse 62, Jesus is referencing Psalm 110.1, which says this, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus, you remember from several weeks ago, he quoted this psalm in Mark chapter 12, putting forth a question to the religious leaders that they couldn't answer. And the focus of what Jesus is saying here in Mark 14 is that they, the religious leaders, will see him, Jesus, sitting at the right hand of power. And if that word power is capitalized in your Bible, most likely because it's a reference to Almighty God, the Father. 
What is Jesus doing here? Psalm 110.1 declares that the Father will make the Son's enemies his footstool. In other words, Jesus is saying here in Mark 14, you, my enemies, will be my footstool. One day, these roles will be reversed and you will be sitting under me. You will be judged by me. What's also interesting here, most of the time throughout the book of Mark, you might remember this, whenever a demon announced Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus would rebuke the demon and tell it to be quiet. Remember that? Remember when he would heal people, often, not always, but often, he would tell them, keep this a secret, don't tell anybody. Why did he do that? Because it wasn't time yet. The knowledge of who he was was not yet meant to be revealed. But now is the time. Now it's time. Jesus doesn't hold back anymore. It's time for the Son of Man to be revealed. He won't be received and celebrated, though. He's going to be accused and condemned. Caiaphas, the next moment, tears his clothes. That was a response of grief or lament or outrage. What Jesus did here by uttering these words outrages the high priest and is called blasphemy. Why? Because Jesus is making himself out to be God. And that is blasphemy unless you're Jesus and it's true. So the council decides here that he is worthy of death. But no, they don't have the authority to do this. They don't have the authority, that is, to put someone to death. They could come to that conclusion, but they don't have the authority to carry it out. They have to appeal to Rome, which is why they send Jesus to Pilate, and we'll talk about that next week. But their immediate response here, they condemn Jesus to death, they say he deserves to death, and then they respond violently. You probably noticed, as Scott was reading, they spit on him. They strike him, and to spit and strike someone was to vehemently reject him. And there could also, by the way, there could be an allusion here to Isaiah 50, verse 6, which reads, I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. They cover his face, it says in the text, and they strike him and say, prophesy. They wanted him to tell them, who struck you? They wanted him to say who it was that struck him in that. And the guards, they receive him with blows. The Sanhedrin strikes him. The guards continue to strike him. And let me just ask a question. Can you imagine? Can you imagine doing this? You know, it's one thing to strike a person. And I'm not talking about fighting for self-defense. I'm not talking about protecting yourself. I'm just simply saying outright striking a person out of hate, out of rage, that's one thing. That is a person created in the image of God. That's a horrible thing to do. Can you imagine it being the God of the universe that your hand visibly, physically slaps across the face? But do you want to know the truth? Had I been standing in that room, had I been among the Sanhedrin, it would have been my hand too. Because man opposes God. Man opposes God through foolish accusations. They accuse him of blasphemy all the while Jesus was telling them the truth. 
But you know, we see this in our day and age as well. Proverbs 19.3 states, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Don't raise your hand, but just a question. Has things ever been going wrong in your life, so wrong to the point that your heart, maybe you don't say it, maybe you do think it, maybe you don't, but your heart rages against the Lord. We oppose the Lord. What did Adam say to God when God questioned him about eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Adam said this in Genesis 3.12. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. It's right there, right after the first sin. Do you see it? He, said, he first blames the wife. He blames Eve, the woman. But then he blames God, the woman that you gave me. Adam is accusing God of giving him a faulty wife. This is your fault, God. That's what Adam is saying. He's essentially believing that God is not good. His thoughts about God have turned negative. And this, I would argue, is the foundational issue behind all of our problems. The way we think about God Whatever we believe about God is what fuels our attitudes and our behavior. When we believe the truth about God, that he is life, that he is love, that he provides, that he grants peace and joy, our lives are full. Even if everything around us is chaotic and nothing is going right, our lives are full because we believe the right things about God. But when we believe the lies when we follow the seed of the serpent that whispered the lies to Eve, when we believe his lies, our hearts accuse God. And instead of taking responsibility for our own sinfulness, it affects our thoughts, it affects our attitudes, it affects our behavior and everything, and that's what causes all of our problems. That's what leads to anxiety. That's what leads to hate. That's what leads to envy. That's what leads to murder. That's what leads to lies. That's what leads to loneliness. It all stems from disbelief, from harboring secret accusations against God. Eve chose to believe the serpent over God. Adam chose to listen to the wife over God. When we fail to believe God, we fail to obey God. This goes very deep. It goes very deep in our heart of hearts. The core reason why we do what we do is because what we believe about God. A person, for example, who is discontent in their life, even when they may have everything they could ever want, stems from a disbelief, a wrong belief about God that God is not good that God does not give good things. Let me challenge you with this. This goes very deep. So let me challenge you. Search your soul. Search your soul this week and ask yourself these questions. What do I disbelieve or what do I wrongfully believe about God? And how is that leading me to wrong thoughts, wrong attitudes, and wrong behaviors that I see in my life? By the way, that's a long life pursuit. That's not something you're going to get through in a day. The lies that we believe go very deep and sometimes can take years to unravel, but the results, the results, my friends, are seeing God more clearly 
and that leads to seeing our sin more deeply, which, leads to, which grants us the opportunity to confess it, which leads to more peace and more freedom in our lives. So let me challenge you. Recognize your own accusations against God. Confess those and embrace the peace and freedom that he offers. Your final point this morning, man opposes God through foolish denial. Man opposes God through foolish denial. Pick it up in verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to evoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. The foolishness of denial. And I call this foolishness, by the way, because it's obvious. Have you ever been in a situation where someone is obviously lying and it is so obvious, like the nose on their face? This is obvious. It is absolutely obvious that Peter is lying here, that he is denying this. I said earlier, by the way, that Peter is below in the courtyard. Jesus is in an upper room. And this is the high priest's palace. He has many servants and many guards, as we see in the text. Peter warming himself by a fire, a fire that probably would have been built so the guards and the servants could keep themselves warm. And what is this? It's a comparison. A contrast would be a better word. Peter here is relatively comfortable, while Jesus is being tried, accused, and beaten. But Peter's comfort doesn't last long. The servant girl, the high priest, she comes to him and says, you are also with the Nazarene Jesus. And if you're confused about that term, the Nazarene, that's simply a reference to the town of Nazareth. That's where Jesus grew up. Peter denies it. And look at his denial in verse 68. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. In our terms today, we would say, I don't know what you're talking about. And as we all know, when you say, I don't know what you're talking about, you know exactly what they're talking about. That's not what we say when when we're confused. When we're confused, we say something like, huh? It's a weak denial. Notice two things happen after this. Peter tries to get away. Did you notice that? He moves to the gateway. He moves away from the fire to the gateway, presumably slinking into the shadows, trying to get away from this servant girl and the rooster crows. Now, either Peter didn't hear it, he's too busy trying to get away, or, or perhaps he didn't, didn't make the connection there, but it doesn't happen there. He, he doesn't make that connection. He gets out of the way, but the servant girl doesn't let it go. She sees him again and points out to the bystanders, possibly other servants, possibly the soldiers, and he denies it again. Till finally, she, she'd gotten the attention of the bystanders. They're looking at him, and they're like, no, no, certainly you're with them. You are a Galilean. Now, what do they mean by that? Well, Matthew 26 tells us that they recognized Peter's Galilean accent. He spoke with a different accent. Peter was from the north. He was from a fishing village. He spoke differently than the southerners in the city of Jerusalem. And it's just like us here in the United States. We've got different accents, north, south, east, and west. And you can tell a lot about a person, and specifically where they're from, by their accent. 
For instance, when somebody speaks with a southern drawl, we know it. Full confession. I'm from the south. I actually hail from Texas. And my wife tells me that, you know, sometimes I slip back into that southern drawl. But she's got a cute northern accent, so there you go. At this point, Peter slides from bad to worse. The text tells us, but he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Now, this doesn't mean he was using swear words as we would think of them today, a strong language. No, he's using what he's seeing. He's, he's saying something like this. He's saying, may I be accursed if I'm lying, is what he's calling down, a curse upon himself. If I'm lying about this, may I be accursed, is what he's saying there. And then for a second time, the rooster crows. And then Peter remembers Jesus' words. And then the text tells us that he breaks down and he weeps. Conscious is pricked. Like I said, the silly thing about this is how obvious it was that Peter was in denial. Peter was known to them. If you think about it, if this servant girl was able to recognize Peter had been with Jesus, then many of the bystanders and the soldiers probably recognized him as well. They'd probably seen him before in the temple or in other places with Jesus. They recognize his Galilean accent. His own actions here make him look guilty. And after she approaches him, he recedes. And furthermore, his speech is so vehemently against Jesus, he's obviously lying. And this is Peter who said in verse 31 that he would go with Jesus and die with Jesus. Now he's running from a servant girl. It's his fear that keeps him from standing with his Lord. Why? Why did he do it? Self-preservation. Denial can make one look so absurdly foolish, but it's all about self-preservation. When I was a kid... I had a sin nature, still do. And when I was a kid, I tried to trick my sister into cleaning my room. My parents caught wind of what was going on. And they questioned, they set us both down and they questioned us, and guess what? I denied it, full on denied it. But my denial was so obvious, it was clear I was like lying, and after a time when they continued to question, I, it, truth came out. What was I after? Self-preservation. I did not want to get into trouble. But let's be honest, this is not just a childish thing. We do this as adults. We deny anything is wrong when things are wrong. We deny relational conflict. We deny sin problems. We deny addictions. Anything for self-preservation. Anything to make ourselves look good. Worst of all, we can deny God. How? Like Peter does? Maybe, but you know what? I'm inclined to think we do it in more subtle ways. We might say things like, yes, I believe in God, but yeah, I'm not one of those crazy religious fanatics. Just kind of downplay our faith. We might say something like, oh, I go to church, but, but I'm a normal person. Don't worry. Are these outright denials? No, they're not outright denials, but you know what? They're bent away from God, aren't they? They're not bent toward God. We're trying to sway people's opinion of us to be in our favor, and we're willing to downplay our faith in order to gain, to, for them to like us. I remember once on an airplane, 
I was in college at the time, and I was talking to another college guy. We just happened to be sitting in the same row, didn't know each other. And we were asking each other typical questions. Hey, where do you go to school? What are you studying? That kind of thing. And I was going at the time to a Bible school. I was going for a music degree, but it was a Bible school, and I tried to play up the music side and downplay the Bible side because I wanted this guy whom I didn't know and have never seen since to like me. Was I denying Jesus? No, not outright denying, but I was trying to hide that part of my life, downplay that part of my life. Why? Because I wanted this guy to like me. I don't even remember his name. If I saw him on the street, I wouldn't be able to point him out. And that was just silly. It was just foolish. And I wish I could go back to that moment, and instead I wish I could be a witness to him. You may not outright deny your Lord and Savior, but do you shy away? Do you avoid talking about him? Do you find yourself fearful of what others might think of you if they knew that you owned a Bible, if they knew that you prayed, if they knew that you went to church? Are you trying to protect your own image in some way? Is your self-preservation on your mind when you interact with people who don't know Jesus? Is your self-preservation really worth it? Are you ashamed of Christ in some ways? Are you ashamed of all he's done to save you? I'm guilty. And I would wager that everyone in this room is also guilty to some extent. Goodness, what's the answer for us? The answer lies in the last six words of verse 72. And he broke down and wept. That should be our response. Why? Because he recognized exactly what he had done. This, by the way, this is the start of Peter's repentance here. Now, it took Peter a while to get to the point where he was restored. We read about that restoration in John chapter 21. I would encourage you to go read about that. But it started here with his brokenness over his sin. And that's where our restoration starts. It starts with broken repentance of sin. Beloved, let me challenge you. Make repentance a daily practice. I've spoken on this just now, but I want to simply repeat. Bring your sin to God whose arms are wide open. You may not be a crier. You might not break down like Peter did. That's okay. All I'm saying is bring your heartfelt repentance to the Lord. Bring it every day and always remember, always remember no matter how you might feel in that moment, how discouraged or condemned you might feel, always remember that your God receives you with arms open wide no matter what you've done. But you know, there's something else I want to tackle here. Whether you not you have from time to time denied your Savior like we all have, do you remain in a state of denial? Have you always denied Jesus? Do you deny him today? Do you know the man? Peter said he did not know the man, do you? Have you embraced the truth of who Jesus is or are you clinging to your arguments? Are you clinging to your accusations against Jesus? Is your heart in a state of perpetual denial? Ask yourself, why is that? 
Why do you refuse to believe in Jesus? I would wager at the core of it is simply a stubborn heart clinging to weak arguments when all the evidence points to the contrary. Here's the amazing thing. Again, he stands with arms wide open, ready to accept you. All it takes is confession of your sin, that is turning from your sin and embracing him by faith. So let me just ask, won't you come to Jesus today? If you're watching online and you don't know Jesus, won't you come to him today by turning from your sin, receiving him by faith, trusting in his death on the cross and his resurrection as payment for your sin? And catch me afterwards if you'd like to know more. I'd be happy to talk to you. Now, buried within the passage that we just went through is a very interesting detail that's easy to miss. Actually, it's easy to miss its significance. Verse 65 tells us they covered his face when they struck him. Did you see that? They covered his face. In the narrative, They did it to blind him so he couldn't see who struck him. But there's a connection here to another condemned man whose face was covered. Do you remember? We studied it a year and a half ago. Haman, Esther chapter 7. When Haman's plot was exposed and he begged the queen for help, one simple line of the text reads like this. As the words left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now, in that culture at that time, it was a sign of condemnation. It was a sign of judgment. Why is this significant? Because Jesus is being connected with Haman. That wicked Haman, Esther called him. The man who was bent on destroying the Jews. Jesus is connected to Haman. But why? Jesus was innocent. Jesus was nothing like Haman. Why the connection? Because Jesus in this moment, in the narrative, is being treated like Haman. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus was treated like a sinner. He never sinned, but he was treated. He was made legally a sinner and treated with the same vileness as Haman. Why? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the gospel. This was the payment for your sin and mine. Jesus treated like Haman. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. The accusations were completely foolish. They were not even able to confirm them. It was only by Jesus' own words, true words, by the way, that they were able to pin any kind of conviction on him. For our sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus allowed himself to be treated like wicked Haman so you and I might have our sin paid for and for you and I to be treated like righteous Jesus. That's the gospel exchange. He takes our sin, he gives us his righteousness. I began this sermon by introducing a famous argument against the existence of God, namely the problem of evil. 
If evil exists, how can there be a loving, all-powerful God? But you see, that argument is foolishness, just like the foolishness we saw in our text. That argument is foolishness because it assumes the existence of evil. The existence of evil is actually a strong argument for the existence of God. For where did evil come from if there's nothing good with which to contrast it? If there is no God, if we are all products of a sequence of random events, if we're here by chance, then what is evil? Kill or be killed. Eat or be eaten. There is no right or wrong. If you and I are merely happenstance, then there is no standard. Nothing is relevant. So the existence of evil is actually a strong argument for the existence of God. Then is he all loving? Is he all powerful? The argument denies he could be one or the other. But Jesus is all loving. Jesus is all powerful. And where do we see that? We see that at the cross. We see his overwhelming love by dying for us and we see his all-powerfulness, his omnipotence by taking the sin of humanity on his shoulders. The cross is not weakness. The cross is not foolishness, though it seems like it is to those who are perishing. No, the cross is strength. The cross is power. The cross is the way our Savior bridged the gap so that we can cross from darkness to light. The cross is the greatest argument for both God's love and his omnipotence. Be assured, there is a God, and it is foolishness to oppose him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you that you conquered, that you walked the path. You walked it alone, you walked it condemned, though you were innocent. You were struck by your own creation. You were accused for speaking the truth. You were denied by a trusted friend, and yet you did not give up. You went on. You followed the plan. You died in our place, and you rose again, securing for those who believe eternal life. Jesus, forgive us for the ways we argue against you. Forgive us for the accusations we hurl at you. Forgive us for the deep beliefs we have that are wrong about you. Forgive us for the ways we deny you. Jesus, strengthen us to follow you, to take a stand in this life, a stand for the gospel, and give us the strength to admit our wrong. Teach us more about the gospel. Teach us more about you. We thank you and we pray in God's holy name. Amen.